Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we mull over issues to do with cars and transport. And in this week's program, news stories with David Campbell include Telstra cuts the price of their Model 3 but increases Australian charging prices and Holden hopes to rebound after several bad sales years. With a New South Wales and a federal election coming up, we are being bombarded with transport projects that political parties are promising as their transport policy but a few big projects are not the fundamental changes we need. Brian Smith and I discuss the six things that should be at the basis of all political transport policies. Brian and I also look at the success, or otherwise, of building car models from Lego. Now they are even going life-size. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or our Facebook site Overdrive City where this week we have some pictures from a traffic engineer on difficult situations for autonomous cars. So let's start the program. Here's the news. When Tesla first launched their Model S, Elon Musk said that over time he hoped to get the price down to $35,000. Now he has finally delivered on his promise of an electric vehicle for the masses, confirming the reduced pricing. Specs for the standard range start at $35,000 or around $49,000 before US government incentives. The standard Model 3 offers a range of 355 kilometres, a top speed of 210 kilometres per hour, and 0 to 60 miles per hour in 5.6 seconds. While for an additional $2,000, the standard range plus has an extended range of 386 kilometres, will hit 60 miles per hour in 5.3 seconds, and tops out at 225 kilometres per hour. While the price of Tesla cars is decreasing, Tesla's Australian arm has confirmed national fee increases for use of its charging infrastructure, citing a rise in electricity and operating costs. Tesla will increase the average price of charging at any of its Australian supercharger stations from $0.35 per kilowatt hour to $0.42 per kilowatt hour, a 20% increase. Holden has forecast at least a 9% growth in its combined SUV and ute sales this year, forecasting that 70% of its overall sales volume will come from these two major categories. Holden is attempting to turn around its fortunes after its sales slumped 33% last year in the wake of its exit from local manufacturing in October 2017. Since then, the Lion brand sales and share have fallen to the point where it moved from a distant second in the marketplace to third behind Mazda in 2015, only to fall further behind to fourth behind Hyundai in 2016, and then to sixth last year behind Mitsubishi and Ford. The company has recently launched a new brand marketing campaign dubbed This Is How We SUV, which is hoped will help increase Holden's sales in 2019. The Jetta name has made the leap from a Volkswagen model 
to a Volkswagen brand. The long-running nameplate has been established as a brand in its own right to serve as Volkswagen's budget brand for the Chinese market. The Jetta brand's two SUVs and a sedan will be new and built in China by the FAW Volkswagen joint venture. Volkswagen is already the biggest selling car maker in the world's biggest car market, but its global reach has long been hampered by its inability to make budget cars. One of the reasons for the Jetta brand's birth is that it allows Volkswagen brand to position itself more as a premium class, the same that it holds in Europe. Prosecutors in Germany have hit BMW with an 8.5 million euro fine for fitting almost 8,000 cars with the wrong engine management software. The fine relates to an admission by BMW that it had inadvertently fitted a diesel engine software upgrade for the X5 and X6 into 5 series and 7 series electronic control units or ECUs. Prosecutors accepted that BMW had done nothing intentional but was guilty of oversight lapses. A depressed new vehicle market outlook and dealer and customer feedback on pricing is behind Maserati Australia's cutting the prices of its models by up to $46,000, following similar changing price points for some BMW and Mercedes-Benz models. Termed realignment by Maserati Australia, the new price scale is aimed at maintaining sales and market share in a very competitive high-end market. Last year, BMW reduced 7 Series pricing by up to almost $50,000, which put the model under the $200,000 mark for its entry-level models. Similarly, in August last year, Mercedes-Benz reduced its S-Class pricing by up to $44,000. The start of this year's Formula One is rapidly approaching with the Melbourne Grand Prix just around the corner. There have been a lot of changes since the chequered flag dropped in Abu Dhabi last November with new rule changes and many drivers moving from one group to another. Some of this year's changes include few allowance tweaks to allow drivers to push a little harder, the disadvantage for heavier drivers being reduced, and new gloves to improve safety. Recently, the FIA confirmed its proposed 2021 engine regulations, which outlined a 1.6-litre V6 turbo hybrid engine, but without the exhaust energy recovery system. Car enthusiasts are in for a treat in May with the first ever Sundays Festival of Motoring firing up. The festival will see participants and spectators converge in the Sundays for three days of motoring events from the 3rd to the 5th of May. The central focus of the festival will be the Rally Sundays, a car rally that will see competitors race rally cars through up to 120 kilometres of private and public land. Hosted by the Sundays Sporting Car Club, the festival will kick off on the 3rd of May with a parade of vintage, modern, classic and restored cars. On Sunday, the Sundays Rally will be held, which is a Queensland Rally Championship event. And that has been the news. Well, a couple of important issues to talk about. I have on the line transport planner extraordinaire Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. How are you? Indeed, I believe you are speaking at a conference coming up soon, David, about the sort of things that politicians ought to be uh, 
promising to do with transport in the upcoming election. Well, there's both a state election for New South Wales, but there's also, of course, the federal election coming up fairly soon too. And Brian, I think many people in the transport planning profession have talked about elections where political parties start splashing money around, but it's all on one-off big projects and I believe that they should not justify their transport platform if you pardon the pun on how much they are spending but rather how cleverly they are spending it. I agree with you David uh, there's a great saying in our industry uh, that the very fast train only runs on election years (laughs) and it's the same sort of thing you know big big announcements big dollars and uh, they try to I guess catalyze some kind of interest but always through big pieces of infrastructure or big ideas that are not necessarily suited to the problem that needs to be solved. Yes, and I see the problem not as building big projects, but rather building systems. And if you haven't got enough money to build the gold-plated system as a system that covers a lot of territory, building it as a short, sharp bit, as a gold-plated solution for a very narrow part of the urban area or even the rural area is not the answer to the problem. Another element of that, of course, David, is that uh, we tend to have an emphasis uh, at state and federal government level about infrastructure and not necessarily about the services that the infrastructure might require to work. So you can build a busway, but if you haven't restructured the public transport network to take advantage of it, then um, your infrastructure just may sit there not getting the value that you hoped it would for our cities. Something like the light rail in the ACT, we can argue whether that's a good or a bad project. But the point about it is that even if you build it, you've got to have systems leading to it Mm. so that it doesn't just serve the corridor, which will boom in land prices a bit, but it serves the community more. And so feeder buses or so on become part of it, which becomes part of the cost of doing it properly, not just doing the project. Yeah, I think one of our problems is that uh, the media can't deal very well with complex problems and complex solutions. So they're always looking for a very simple answer. You know, mm. it, it, we, you know, this light rail will solve everything. This new motorway is what we need. Mm. Um, but yeah, they tend not to to understand anything complex. And so I think politicians fall into the trap of looking similarly for those those big, simple statements that will play well in the media. And that's my second point, that we've really got to show some understanding of the diverse, I was going to say complex, perhaps the word diverse nature of our needs, and it's not just to the CBD. You and I have talked a lot about that. But, I mean, recently the Grattan Institute, that does some good work, came out with a great analysis of the transport problem based on people driving to the city centre. In the scheme of things, very few people do that. It's about 10%, isn't it, David? 10% of trips. Even less. It's 10% of jobs, of which the majority of them are going by public transport. It's probably about 1% or 2%. Now, trips to the CBD might be nearer the, the, the 10%, but most of those are done by public transport. So car trips to the CBD represent some component, but only a very small component of the whole diverse nature of the city. Well, they need people like us, don't they, David? 
funny you should mention that because my third point is to restore technical excellence to government departments. Oh, that's us out then. (laughs) I'll recommend my colleagues rather than myself. (laughs) When I studied engineering, they put up a graph that said the world's in problems, well, certainly America. It was a graph of the number of people graduating as engineers and it was going down. And it was a graph of the, also on the graph, was the number of people studying law, which was going up. And in 1974 or something, they crossed. And they reckon that was the apocalypse. It's like <laughs> crossing the beams, you know. Crossing it, it, the beams in Ghostbusters. In Ghostbusters. So now I think it's PR people and project managers. We've got to project manage these things very carefully, but no matter how well we do that, getting in on time and on budget, although that doesn't seem to be too common a th- occurrence these days, but it's a total waste if it's the wrong project. Mm. The lady who is now uh, Eleanor uh, Huntington, who's now the leads the engineering faculty as the dean of engineering at the ANU, she said creativity is based on four things, and the first one was deep understanding. And I don't think we have. It goes back to your other point about complexity. It's not deep enough. You know, we just we yeah. ha- we're not grasping. The reality of we're doing what project looks good and then employing a lot of PR people, which I do in my own way, but PR people to make that look good. Though we're well placed now with a lot of digital technologies that help us to to gather the immense amount of data that we're now creating. So you probably have an Opal card, a New South Wales public transport smart card. I've got one. Mm. They're an amazing, amazing thing. And they they can provide an incredible amount of information about your trips. Uh, In addition to that, all of the buses in the Sydney system have little chips that track, Mm. you know, where they're going and transponders. So so we can download immense amounts of data on people's behaviour and on what's happening out there in the, the streets. So we have the ability to get that deep information. I think we don't have the time. We're not given the time in our our projects to do this. Quite often we see in New South Wales, for example, projects announced, contracts signed, construction commences before business cases have been done and before planning has been done. So project evaluation is, is certainly a problem, David, and I know that's something that you're quite concerned about. You talk about the data. I saw someone reporting on Opal data of which they looked at the amount of people travelling in each month of the year, which is interesting, and how it changed a bit between peak and off-peak in December. But they then made an absolute conclusion that it was people travelling at different times of the day. It might not have been. It might have been some people not travelling at all and others started to travel. It's, there was some data out the other day that showed that the decline in public transport usage in the States is not people giving up, it's people using less. Yes. And so you need to understand the depth of that data. The trouble with big data is it can be one average which covers a multitude of sins. Mm, indeed. What that does then, and I think that you alluded to earlier with the media and that, is that people are putting their faith in past things. A road works, so we've got to build roads. Or a train works, so we've got to build trains. Rather than saying, hang on, not just fundamentalist thinking, saying, well, what are you trying to achieve and what are you trying to do with it? Are you referring not just to technology but to sort of behaviour change, David? Because 
I mean, we, we do tend to, to grasp at the things we know and to, to hold on mm. to them and that believe that if we just do more of the same, we'll get a better outcome. <laughs> the technology, I don't, I'm not sure, is, is often the problem. A, a road is a very useful piece of kit to move people and goods, and it's how you do that that makes it efficient or not. Mm. So if you've invested in a road and then you're, you're building it in order to have a single occupant vehicle a car to drive along it then you're not making the best use of that that asset you move the most number of people in the least amount of space you know multi-people vehicles like buses or trains and so it can be the way we approach the behavior that um that we expect from people as well as the infrastructure and um, and the technology we use to exploit that infrastructure. I agree with you. It's not just uh, the technology, but yeah, the classic example is some of the big motorways that we're building, which we're still building on the old style of a free-for-all. Yes. Whereas the future is how we use each lane carefully, properly, with a much broader context in mind, not just how do I get the biggest tolls, but... No, you're right. Take the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. That's a 1932. It was opened. It's a, a, a very old piece of technology. It's a mm. simple road. The the bus lane. That one bus lane carries more people than all of the other vehicle lanes combined. Mm. And so the piece of infrastructure is an incredible, incredible potential capacity if we know how to use it efficiently. And mm. just and as you say, a free for all where whatever ever size vehicle you want to drive, and whether you want to drive it on your own or with other people in it, that you know you're completely free to do that. So you, we're not making the best use of our assets, that's for sure. Some people have been calling for transport planners and politicians to become transport agnostics, that they don't have their faith in one perception that uh, oh everyone will be doing this or or do that as though it's just one thing you've got to bring freight you've got to bring everything into it but with an understanding of managing the system well i think diversity is very important isn't it we we need diverse voices and diverse uh, inputs to get the best outcome and and i don't mean diverse just in things like gender or, or ethnicity but in our professions as well. So our, mm. our transport planning profession has engineers, it has planners, it has geographers. We're increasingly uh, getting digital people. Mm. Um, and so I think as we get more voices in transport planning, and it's, it's about mobility for people and it's about health, then, yeah, I think we will get more sort of agnostic approaches to to solving problems rather than the old uh, let's widen that road by another lane or let's um, let's build another tram line. Absolutely correct that we we need that. Car companies are now some are employing anthropologists to help them understand what autonomous vehicles might mean. <laughs> well, I'm an engineer, but I love the notion of taking people across. You know what CP Snow was it said across the gulf between what might be the social sciences and the and the hard sciences, soft and hard sciences, are really both are very, very critical. But I think we have to completely overhaul our project evaluation. You said earlier, and absolutely right, that often the decision is made and then they do some analysis. And in fact, the Auditor General came out and said that very thing about the tram in uh, Newcastle. Uh-huh. Now, we st- I'm not saying it's a good or a bad project, other than the fact that all the analysis was done after it was decided to build it. Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of typical approach at the moment that we're, we're backfilling the justifications 
for decisions that we already make. And those decisions are often very political. And you and I have talked about the, the light rail thing of, you know, mm. um, the answer is light rail. What was the question again? Uh, there's a lot of that sort of modalism that goes on where we are just trying to justify our, our biases or our differentiation. So, you know, one political party might be saying, well, we're going to build a train. The other says, no, we'll build a tram. Or one might do a busway or a light rail. And so really they're quite invested in that decision at a really political level, just as a very simple brain idea, a thought bubble. Uh, and then there's this desperate race to to make it stack up. I saw some interesting stuff out of New Zealand, a conference the other day, where they, they reviewed the cost-benefit analyses of some major road projects that have been put in and then looked at whether the benefits were realised and then had another look at how the benefit costs were calculated. So projects that had a massive benefit cost ratio turned out not to have the anywhere near the impacts or the benefits mm. that they were intended to have. And that would be a good thing for us to start doing, David, I think, to, to inform our project evaluation by looking at how well we performed previously. Well, England has a very thorough review, the UK across the board, in saying let's go back and see whether we have achieved it. And this one did moderately well, this one did badly, and this one really worked. Yeah, absolutely agree with it. And in fact, what we're doing now is that the process, which is cost-benefit driven, even that has a great limitation in that it says I'm going to spend a bit of dollars here and it's got a cost benefit of 1.3. I'm going to spend a hell of a lot of dollars here and it's got a cost benefit of 1.2. And I'm going to spend a squillion dollars over here and it's got a cost benefit of 1.4. Oh, let's do the squillion dollar one. We haven't said, well, hang on, what if we spent that money differently? Well, look, let's, let's take a look at a, a current New South Wales government policy, David which is um, if you are a, a regular user of toll roads to a certain level, then you will have free car registration. On the face of it, you might think, sure, someone who has to pay out a lot of money in tolls, mind you, to private companies, should have some kind of benefit to, to offset the incredible cost of that, particularly if they live in Western Sydney. But, of course, what's happening here is that you're, you're taking money that would go into our general revenue through registration costs and you're effectively giving it to the private sector. So it's, it's encouraging people to drive more on toll roads mm. by, I guess, taking away the, the cost burden that could be a factor in travel behaviour. If something costs a lot of money, it might be worth taking the train. It might be worth driving at different times or driving different mm. routes. But a, a policy like that, which might have been intended to ease a cost burden on a vulnerable person has quite a, a chilling transport planning effect. Totally agree. And in fact, the whole collecting of revenue from transport, I think, is totally broken in the sense, I think I mentioned before, we charge a high toll on certain roads. We'd prefer people to be using them rather than going through local streets, but we don't want people to not have to consider a cost in doing it. And in that, we then need to, what everyone, I think, is the, every planner I know, is pushing for a road user charge where you get charged based on how far you travel, where you travel, and what time of day you travel. It doesn't have to be a big charge. It just has to be enough of a thing that's saying, you know, this is a service we're providing. Think about it from every aspect as to before you make a decision of what mode of transport you use. And these are the levers that you pull that influence behaviour that begin to inform the sort of projects that 
our politicians will begin to to identify. So mm. if if some of these levers are working, maybe it's we're building a railway rather than a, a toll road. The only trouble is to sell that, you cannot sell it to the public based on logic, right? You can't sell it based on financial cleverness. If you look at what they tried to do in amalgamation of councils, if you look at Brexit, the people who argued for those or against Brexit, it was on a financial basis. It made financial service. And a lot of people just didn't associate with that gel to it. They got sidetracked by, in terms of amalgamating councils, you know, roads, rates and rubbish. Yeah. Or, you know, will you still mow the grass in front of my place? And that's our dilemma, I think transport people have to now start thinking about how to express that rather than saying I've done my analysis and trust me the financial benefit of it is good for the community and or for a uh, private provider. Yes indeed. All right Brian let's uh, put that aside it's a very serious issue and I appreciate your comments I reserve the right to reflect on those in my presentation to the conference You're listening to Overdrive. You're a man who has uh, had a passion for toy cars and that, uh, and a lot of recently has gone into building Lego cars that look like the real thing. A couple of those has come up. Now, I showed you a picture of the 1936 Auto Union Type C race car. It's a little uh, chunky and and angular in Lego, but it's a beautiful car. Uh, I like the attempt, uh, and I, I like that it's kind of been crowdsourced in a sense, hasn't it? By Lego has an ideas portal where a person can create an idea and a Lego creation and put it into this portal, and other people vote on projects for Lego to make. So it, it seems that a user called Radera00 proposed the idea of a kit for the 1936 Auto Union Type C, which pretty quirky, pretty. Um, mm. You know, uh, you know, not exactly mainstream, but yeah, a beautiful and unusual-looking car. Finally, the Batmobile. I think that looks rather good, but maybe that says that the original Batmobile was very square and flat <laughs> and easy to replicate. Maybe uh, it's a reflection of how hard it is to do it properly. Perhaps it's a reflection of how good the design was from the very beginning. Well, I like their little very blocky uh, Batman and Robin figures, which I think they might have uh, been inspired by the woodenness of their performances (laughs) on the television program. (laughs) Well, the the original Batmobile was a disaster too, horrible car. But uh, anyway, that's by the by. Brian, how lovely it is to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Brian Smith. And we were talking both some technical things and also making cars or models of cars out of Lego. And this has been Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. Thanks to Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just, without whom the program would not get delivered. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. 
And you can always go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.